And I was on city council in those days, and so my workplace was at City Hall, and I was walking downtown, and I, uh, as I often did, I was walking down Spring Garden Road, and as I passed a couple of different cafes or restaurants, there were, there were various people there in front of the windows that were there, and the same thing happened at two different places. As I went by, people inside stood up and applauded, and I found this just stunning. It was just stunning and wonderful and gratifying, and it was just one of these moments that has stayed with me forever. But I didn't take it, you know, as personal applause. You know, it wasn't wasn't me personally. It was, I think, a recognition that people had voted NDP because they were expecting and hoping for, for serious change in, inside our province. You're listening to On the Record Offscript. This week's featured interview is with Howard Epstein, a former MLA and former Halifax City Councillor who represented the riding of Halifax Shibukto. If you know Nova Scotia politics, you likely already know Howard. Howard was a member of the NDP and was not afraid to speak out when he felt that the party wasn't living up to its principles. In our interview with Howard, he talks about that and the challenges he faced in being so independent-minded. For the most part, the interview is an easy listen, but it happens in, on a beautiful day in the summer of 2015, and Howard suggested he and Louise have the conversation on his patio, and we were fairly new at uh, interviewing and podcasting at that point in time, so there uh, are a few moments where there's a gust of wind or a loud bird uh, that we didn't realize would show up so loudly on the recordings, but uh, those moments didn't last long, so when they happen, we encourage you to listen on, and uh, without further ado, here's our interview with Howard Epstein that took place at his home in the summer of 2015. So I'm retired now. Uh, it's been a year and a half since the last provincial election, and I chose not to uh, not to run. I'm 66, and I am a lawyer, and I practiced uh, since I was around 24. So I had a career that was more than 40 years uh, in duration. I was elected as a politician seven times in a row, as it happens, twice to city council and then five times to the provincial legislature. And that represented 20 years. But that was the last 20 years of my career, and I had a a career of 20 years before that. And before that, I practiced law, I I taught law, I was the director of various organizations, uh, some of them labor organizations, and uh, one of them uh, a major environmental organization, the Ecology Action Centre here in Nova Scotia. Uh, I've worked back and forth between Ontario and Nova Scotia, uh, though I'm a native Nova Scotian and like to live here. Never intended to to live permanently in Ontario, but there was interesting work to be had there. So that was it. I mean, I I practiced law, taught law, and was director of uh, various organizations. So how did you transition into politics? Yeah, well, you know, it, it I don't see it as being a huge transition. I think my whole career was one that was involved in politics. I, I tend to think of politics as being all about public policy. And uh, being a candidate is is uh, one aspect of that. That's a different way of being involved in politics, but it's not the only way, of course. And I think that, that all of my career has been involved in public policy. So uh, being the director of lobbying organizations meant that I was oriented towards trying to change public policy in some way. So I think my whole life has been about about trying to change public policy and being engaged in, in activities uh, that are that I would regard as political. I think of a variation on George Orwell's statement. I would say that all actions are political, only some are more political than others. And certainly speaking out about public policy uh, is is part of the political process. Uh, starting 
activist NGOs is part of a, the being in, engaged in public policy. Sitting on the boards of, of NGOs is part of being engaged in public policy. So my whole life, I think, has been about being involved in politics. Being a candidate was just a step along that uh, process. So when did you start on that, I guess, step? Um to be, be to be a candidate? Well, you know, I did. I, I mean, uh, I was 45 before I was elected to city council, and so I, I had you know, lots of years in of doing other things. And I think I'd had an interest for a long time in maybe going on to city council. There was no particular point in running in my constituency or in the area, in the district, I think they're called districts at the municipal level where I lived because a fellow named Nick Marr was the sitting municipal councillor for the city of Halifax. And there was no point in running against Nick Marr, first because couldn't beat him, and second, there was no point in beating him because he was a wonderful member of city council. So who wanted to beat Nick Marr? There was no question. But when Nick re- retired in 1994, there was a vacancy, and that's when I ran and got elected to city council. So when did you put yourself up as a candidate for um, the House of Assembly? Yeah, so that was four years later. During that time, the amalgamation of the four local municipalities had taken place and HRM was created. I got elected to the HRM Council, but a provincial election was coming up in 1998 and I was nominated to run for the NDP in 1998. So, And when I got elected, I resigned my seat in the uh, HRM Council even though the term wasn't up. Um, so, Backing up for a second, was it, were you asked to run? Did you decide to run and then seek supporters? How did it work when you decided to switch? Yeah, I think I was kind of encouraged to run. I mean, there's a tradition in the NDP of doing fairly thorough candidate search. And what that means is in each constituency, the executive is encouraged by the party uh, apparatus to cast the net as widely as possible and, and look to see if there are a variety of people out there who might uh, might run. And to the extent that I remember it now, I, you know, I was just one of those people that I was asked to think about, about running. I was already engaged in, in the NDP. I was a member of the constituency association executive and involved in the local constituency politics anyway. It wasn't, I was not a stranger to the party. Maybe, you know, back up even further, then, what would have inspired you first to get involved in, in the NDP? Ah, well, it was the party that seemed to best reflect my views on political and social issues. It was interested in social inequality, and we shared views on economic matters and uh, generally on environmental matters, so it seemed the appropriate home. I was always skeptical of both the Liberal and Tory parties. Early on in your book, you talk about what it was like the day after winning... uh, Oh, in 98, yeah, in 98, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, I was actually stunned by the reaction. Uh, I enjoyed it, but, uh, but it was great. So here's what happened is that on March 25th, 98, this was the day after the provincial election, the NDP suddenly jumped forward and we got 19 seats and tied with the Liberals. The Liberals were in a minority position and it wasn't clear whether they were going to stay or we might form a government or we might win the next government. I mean, it seemed obvious that Nova Scotians were looking seriously at the NDP and thinking, 
maybe the NDP will form the government here. Not now, then, you know, uh, maybe fairly soon. And I was on city council in those days, and so my workplace was at City Hall, and I was walking downtown, and I, uh, as I often did, I was walking down Spring Garden Road, and as I passed a couple of different cafes or restaurants, there were, there were various people there in front of the windows that were there, and the same thing happened at two different places. As I went by, people inside stood up and applauded, and I found this just stunning. It was just stunning and wonderful and gratifying, and it was just one of these moments that has stayed with me forever. But I didn't take it, you know, as personal applause. You know, it wasn't wasn't me personally. It was, I think, a recognition that people had voted NDP because they were expecting and hoping for for serious change in inside our province. They thought the NDP was worthy of of their trust in that regard, and that was the moment. That was the moment which was attributable to the years of work beforehand. Jeremy Ackerman and Alexa McDonough and John Holm and a couple of other people who had had been MLAs, you know, in small groupings of, you know, one, two, three at a time over a 20-year period before that. And finally, the moment was right, and we had this great breakthrough. So it was a historic moment. It was really important. And as it happens, you know, it was going to be 11 more years before we actually got the chance to, to form a government. There were ups and downs. But no, that was quite a wonderful moment. And I think manifested uh, hope for change in Nova Scotia. You know, I, I really think that many voters in Nova Scotia hope for the kinds of things that the NDP has traditionally stood up for. I think there's a strong sense of community in Nova Scotia, meaning a sense of obligation of mutual support, so that the government is looked to not to the smallest possible government that you could ever imagine, but in fact to be a useful instrument, to be a useful instrument of achieving better social equality, of eliminating poverty, of being our vehicle for delivering a good health care system, of delivering a good education system, of promoting environmental sustainability, uh, making this a, a good and healthy place to live. Those are things that the NDP has been interested in and the kinds of things we've spoken for a long time. And I, I think those are values that, that Nova Scotians widely share. So were there any specific community needs that prompted you to run um, for the House of Assembly? Well, in a way, it always seemed to me that it was important who actually got elected. And I saw this most strongly at the municipal level, which was my first point of entree to to electoral politics. And some of my law practice had been in front of city council or in front of appeal tribunals or courts challenging some of the decisions that were made by city council. And what I was faced with was decision-making that seemed disappointingly uninformed and unprincipled. And this, in the end, it seemed to me, part of the solution had to be that better informed people should be encouraged to try and take office. And people who thought less about a narrow range of interests and more about a wider range of interests, it seemed to me, should get elected. So I saw that very strongly at the municipal level, and it seemed to me to make sense as well at the provincial level. So, yes, I wouldn't say that there was one particular issue or even a a small set of issues. What I liked about provincial politics is that 
it gave the opportunity to be engaged in larger-scale economic development matters or larger-scale environmental matters or larger-scale occupational health and safety issues, things that I thought were important and, and where the provincial government exercised a lot of power. So I think it was that that really prompted me to, to get involved. Do you think, I guess from your, where you're saying, your work had always been in some way political? Do you think it's challenging for those who don't necessarily come from a political background or background where they're thinking about policy issues on a daily basis? I mean, it seems that's like yes. the makeup of the legislature. Yes, well, it is. You know, I mean, there certainly are people who are in politics for, for reasons of personal ambition or they drift into it. Uh, they get recruited and they don't really have a serious idea about what they want to accomplish or what the legislature is about or or sometimes even what their own party or that the, bar, the party that's recruited them is all about there's drift that's a fact of life uh, for some people but the mechanisms of the legislature are not beyond most people it's it's not so wildly difficult that person from virtually any background couldn't couldn't come forward and learn their way around i hope that we see increasingly a wider array of people from different backgrounds come forward in politics. Uh, there's no reason why an elected assembly shouldn't be a better reflection of the populace at large. I happen to be a lawyer, but lawyers are not the predominant profession in electoral politics. And that's that. this is true at the municipal level, it's true at the provincial level. It's There are more lawyers in parliament but as a proportion, but the profession that is most commonly represented is school teacher uh, for a variety of reasons. What you don't get so much of are people with blue-collar jobs, and you also actually don't get so many people who are highly educated professionals either. This is too bad, especially given that some of the important issues that legislatures grapple with now are environmental issues or health and safety issues. So it, it would be good if we had more engineers or research scientists, for example. But for an engineer or research scientist to take five or ten years off in the middle of their career and be a politician is very difficult. And I identify five or ten years because I think seven years is about the average life expectancy of a politician. So if you imagine someone who is a lawyer who's developed their skills in private practice or a university researcher or an engineer or an accountant who's built up a practice and say they're 35 or 38 and they're just kind of hitting their stride in terms of having a lot of clients or learning their profession at a level at which they're particularly adroit at it, and you come along and say to them, well, I've got an idea. Why don't you just interrupt your practice here for the next uh, five to ten years and get elected? And maybe you'll be in the cabinet. Maybe you won't. Maybe our party will win the government. Maybe it won't. Maybe you'll spend the next five or ten years sitting in the opposition as a backbencher and then you'll get defeated. And I mean, it's easy to see why it's not attractive uh, for people, especially because at the end of that time, you know, they're 45 and you're saying to them, well, okay, now you can take up your career again. Well, they can't, at least not at the same level. They've lost 10 years, not just 10 years of income, but 10 years of developing a client base and skills and a reputation and the ability to kind of go ahead. So it's maybe not a big surprise that we're a bit thin on the ground. It comes to the higher level of expertise. And in terms of blue-collar folks, I don't know. It seems they often just don't think about it as something that they can do. We certainly had a smattering of, uh, of folks with those backgrounds. But I, again, I would say we need more of a mix. Mm. You know? The other thing that you raise in your book, 
So there's the skills and expertise and diversity yeah. uh, elements of who's in the legislature you touched on. And I think the other thing you raised in the book was sort of people who, you know, weren't really part of the party before they yes. ran the, yes. you know, the school board chair yes. or the principal that's right. or yes. the yes. YMCA president. Yes, yes. Um, well, political parties are, are unfortunately all too oriented towards winning elections in the sense of winning government. And so they're very tempted to recruit as candidates people they think are easily electable and and the test for that is all too often name recognition and so name recognition comes from things like being on the school board or maybe being on the local municipal council or being a local police officer who's maybe hit in retirement or it might mean maybe someone who owns a local business and it doesn't necessarily mean that those individuals have a history in the party that they get recruited for the individuals might judge that the moment is ripe for the particular party that has come to speak to them. And so they decide, sure, okay, I think the Liberals are going to win this election, so the Liberals and the Tories and the NDP have all asked me to run for them, so I'll run for the Liberals, thank you very much, and that'll increase my odds of winning. But it doesn't mean that they necessarily have a, have a history or a back in their party's policies, which is, I think, not a good thing for parties ultimately when they do win government or even if they're in the opposition. Right, and how, do, how would that, I guess in government or in opposition manifest as a, a challenge? Oh, well, it certainly was a problem for us in the NDP when, when we were the government because uh, our caucus, I think, was really watered down in in terms of its composition. That is, we just didn't have enough people in it who, were, who had a long history in the NDP. And our premier was very interested in personal loyalty. So the people that he had recruited were mostly the people that he took into his cabinet. And what that meant was that they They did not themselves have a good grasp of what were NDP policies, and and so they were more easily led, I think, than others might have been. Yeah, so problematic. You mentioned that highly educated people and blue-collar workers, kind of at the upper end of the scale, don't usually run for politics. What do you think could be done to, I guess, cast the net wider and have a more diverse selection of candidates? I know that's a difficult question to answer. Yeah, it, it, it is. Well, I think it's up to all the parties to take seriously the idea of being more representative when they seek candidates. So that means more representative in terms of gender, of race, and of economic and employment backgrounds. I don't think there's much that can be done in terms of laws or rules that could usefully address that. I think it's it's more a question of public pressure. It's more a question of parties being driven by their own sense of equities. Publicity is a very strong instrument in that regard. So there's a lot of focus now, for example, on gender. It always happens in elections that articles will be run in the papers about the gender composition of the candidates for different parties. And that's fine. You know, there should be an emphasis on that. But there should also be examination of the other aspects of candidates as well to, to see whether parties are really seeking out candidates who are generally reflective of the population at large or more reflective of the population at large. You're never going to get an exact mirror image representation, but you can certainly, through publicity, nudge things in in that direction. So I think that's the main thing, is people talking about it. One of the questions we had was around sort of the ideal role of the MLA. It seems like there's a lot of kind of debate on whether it's appropriate for MLAs to be doing 
about so much constituency work versus the focus on lawmaking. In your mind, what's, what would the ideal role of an MLA be if you were you know, creating that ideal assembly? Well, the first thing I think is that MLAs should treat it as a full-time job. I know over the years we've seen MLAs carrying on businesses that they came from at the same time as they've tried to carry out their role as, as MLA. I think that's distracting and inappropriate. And now, of course, there are special rules that apply to cabinet ministers. You know, they have to give up their businesses and put things in blind trusts and, you know, kind of spend all their time doing that. But I'm talking about non-cabinet MLAs. So even for non-cabinet MLAs, it should be a full-time job. And most people treated it that way, but a few tried, as I said, to carry on along with it. You know, you can argue the toss a little bit and say, well, you know, if I'm sitting there in my pharmacy in Liverpool, people come in and out of the store, they know where to find me, I keep an eye on the pulse of the community, and I can chat with people, and I'm accessible, and so on. I mean, sure, that you can argue that a little bit, but the trouble is that running a business means that you have to do the paperwork, and you have to do the hiring, and you supervise the employees, and you, you deal with banking, and, and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I, I think for the most part, people should be prepared to put their businesses aside and do the job full-time. So that's that's kind of the, the starting point I, I, would, I would have. Is that common in recent in the last 10 years? Well, not wildly common, but there have been a number of people who have continued to run little businesses uh, along with being an MLA. After that, I don't think you can pick out anything and say that any part of the job should be done to the exclusion of anything else. When the legislature sits twice a year in the fall and the spring, you've got to be there and uh, you've got to pay attention to the, the lawmaking process, to the adoption of the budget, to questions if you're in the opposition and you have to ask questions of the government and take on your role that way. But in the meantime, there is very steady work almost inevitably at the constituency level. Fortunately, we're provided with the resources to have a constituency office and a full-time constituency assistant. This is a very good thing. Constituency assistants are often the face of the MLA in the community. That is, they're the ones that someone seeking assistance deals with at, when they call up or when they show up at the office. And so those people have to be polite. They have to know their way around the provincial government. They have to do their best to show constituents that their MLA is concerned about their case. You can't get people more than they're entitled to, of course, and you can't get them a job, but sometimes people call up and ask about. But you can help them navigate the system, and you can help them fill out forms or take appeals for them if there are appeal tribunals that review things. But a lot of it's information. A lot of it is telling people, no, sorry, this is not a provincial matter. It's a federal matter or it's a municipal matter. Would you like me to refer this to the local municipal councillor or to the local member of parliament? Yes, I would. Okay, so we'll do that. And so that's helpful. For things that are provincial, you know, people call up about wait times, either or access to a specialist that is in the healthcare system or for someone to get into long-term care or they call up about student loans or maybe there's been an accident of some kind and there's a problem about workers' compensation. They might have questions about the school, the school board, or maybe the school's, uh, school board is thinking of closing a school or altering it. I mean, there, there's no shortage of issues. And the constituency assistant, in conjunction with the MLA, 
should be able to handle all those uh, all those questions. In my office, we kept files. We had intake forms, got all the details from people, both the contact data and then, of course, the nature of the problem. And we kept records of what, what we did for them. I reviewed all of these with my constituency assistant on a regular basis. So sometimes I would speak direct with people, either if they wanted to speak with me and not the constituency assistant, or if something was particularly complicated, then we could do it together. But it's important that that work get done. Naturally enough, these things are important to the individuals who come to their MLA seeking help. will often make a big difference in their lives if you can help to navigate the system and make it less stressful and baffling for them. So that part is very satisfying, I have to say. And of course, when a party's in the opposition, that's mostly what you have to do is, is deal with constituency problems. When you're in the government, they don't go away, but it's tempting for an MLA in a government position to slide a little bit in terms of attention to their constituency work. That's certainly true if they're in the cabinet, then it's hard to do it. Then you really need a very good constituency assistant to make sure that people in your area are not going away dissatisfied and because you won't have as much time yourself to put into it. Anyway, I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything that is uh, more or less important. All of this has to be done. It's the job. The job is the whole ball of wax. So you mentioned that a lot of the work in your constituency was casework. How did you consult your constituents on pieces of legislation going forward? Like, how did you, I guess, capture yes. their views? Sure. For one thing, my residents were not shy. They didn't hesitate to tell me what they thought. <laughs> you know, you got letters and phone calls and conversations with people all the time about uh, policy. So there's no shortage of opportunity to uh, to chat with people. And I was never in hiding. I was always out in the community, shopping in the stores or walking up and down the streets or hanging out at the farmer's market or, you know, my kids were in the school system. So I went to soccer games and went to school events. So I was out and around. And so there was no shortage of chances for people to take me aside and tell me, uh, tell me what they thought. And they did. Uh, beyond that, I used to send out newsletters. I first started this when I was on city council, and I, I sent out newsletters that actually discussed policy issues and that gave detailed information to people about what city council was considering. When I started doing this, I got a lot of comments from people who said, Oh, I got your newsletter. It was great. It wasn't like the normal newsletter that I get from a politician, which usually just has a, a few pictures and a calendar in it. This this actually had information, and I read the whole thing. Thank you. So it was a big success, and continued this when I was a member of the legislature. Is I would put out, you know, kind of fairly lengthy uh, newsletters that got delivered to everyone's house, and that was a way for me to let them know what I was thinking and what what I thought the contemporary issues were, and I would. Give them excerpt from speeches I'd given in the legislature and had a little column I think called the scandal scorecard that listed some of more nefarious sometimes amusing doings of, uh, of other members of the legislature. I also included a little a section that focused on municipal issues so that even though of course the province is not the municipality I found that a lot of issues that people were concerned about were municipal issues and legally the province sets the context for decision making at the municipal level. Municipalities have to derive their powers from statutes that are passed by the province. So there was a logical reason for looking at what the municipality was doing. So I, I would include short summaries of different municipal issues as well. 
uh, or school board issues because they sometimes would overlap with provincial powers more or less directly. So that's what I did. And of course, prominently inside would be uh, information about how to contact me. Here's my website. Here's my phone number. Here's the office address. Here's the name of my constituency assistant. Contact us. So there was a lot of back and forth like that, which I generally found quite, quite successful. How did you reconcile what your constituents were saying to you with your personal judgment and the party line? Like, yeah. How did you reconcile that when you were voting in the House? Yeah. Speeches? Well, it kind of went back and forth. For the most part, I didn't find a big difference between what people in the constituency were telling me and what my own ideas were. I mean, there was a reason I got elected, you know, seven times in a row in my area. It was because people tended to think that they could trust me or that my ideas were more or less their ideas and that I wasn't really, I think, out of step with what my voters were thinking. So it was maybe more difficult in between, you know, my worldview and the worldview of my party and government. So there it was, it was trickier. And it happened from time to time that I wasn't uh, supportive of policy initiatives uh, that my government came forward with. And we argued uh, the toss as vigorously as we could inside the caucus and occasionally tumbled out into public. And that was just the way it was. Thinking about last night and a lot of the things you discussed in your book, yeah. it seems like you were probably one of the ones who was at least more publicly out of step with the party position. Yes. What did you learn from that experience? What's it like, sort of a bit of a dissenter within such a fairly... Yes. Well, okay, so so the first thing I think to remember is that I was not alone. I mean, the, I, I represented, I think, a, a wide array of similar opinion inside the NDP. But as an individual, uh, there's a price to pay in the sense, so for example, I wasn't appointed to cabinet, and nor was I given any of the other positions of prominent that are available inside a government party. But that's just the way it goes. You know, if you have principles that you want to advance, sometimes there is a price to pay. I mean, in fact, most of the time there's a price to pay and anyone who's a serious activist has to understand that. I mean, this has kind of characterized my whole career in many ways. I mean, I, I was the director of the Ecology Action Center for four years, and they could only afford to pay me about half the time. Now, the EAC is much more financially successful now. This was, you know, 20, more than 20 years ago, and, and it was a, happened to be a time when there was financial struggle and whatnot. But it's just the way of it. If you're dedicated to a particular policy points of view, then you have to stick with them. And sometimes it means that there are consequences. But, you know, this is what life is, is all about. You live with the consequences of your decisions, regardless of what they are. So there was, there was some of that. I was disappointed, but not for myself personally. I was disappointed in many of the policy choices that were made by the government I was a part of, which is different from a personal regret. It was a regret to see a party in which I had invested so heavily, meaning I had spent so many years, and many other people had as well, dedicated to an array of policy options that were not being followed through or not followed through the way uh, we thought they ought to be. So it was disappointing. And there it is. You, you fight the fight and see what the results are. Like many things, they're acts of faith. You do them because you think they're the right thing to do. And maybe in the end, you will see good results. Maybe uh, you won't be around to see what the results are. It's always chancy. You know, you just, uh, you just don't know. But driving force has been say what you think is the right thing, do what you think is the right thing, and see what happens. One of the things that I think is interesting about that take is when we talk to young people, which we do a fair bit of, about getting engaged in politics, one of the first things we hear is that if it weren't for, you know, the party discipline and the block voting and 
I guess the sense that even people who aren't that familiar with politics have of you know the forces that act on elected officials who do step out of line with what the party would like to see. So I imagine that's another thing that's keeping good candidates away from elected office. If you're advising somebody who is you know highly principled yeah. and you know, passionate about speaking out on um, mm-hmm. the things they believe in, considering being a candidate within an established party, what would you advise them to do? I would advise them to stay the course. That is to, if, if they're interested in being a candidate, then they could be a candidate. But they have to recognize that it might be an uncomfortable situation in which they find themselves, but that it's evolving all the time. I think there was some discussion last night about the difference between party discipline in Canada and in the UK and the United States. In the UK and the United States, I think they're much more relaxed about public shows of differences of opinion. In my view, the extent to which party discipline prevails in Canada is just a sign of political immaturity that applies to all all parties. I mean, it's not just the NDP, of course. I mean, all parties have this. It tends towards the anti-democratic because mostly what it goes hand in hand with is centralization of power in the hands of a very few people. And others are, are told that they got elected because of the attractiveness of the leader and the time and effort of the, the party apparatus at large. And their job is just to be the local public face of the party. And they'll be told what to think, what to say, how to vote, and they're given a role in a piece of theater. This is not healthy. This is, in my view, not much of a reflection of a healthy democracy. So I think that there have to be many more opportunities for active policy uh, debate inside political parties. And I think that'll come. So I I think if someone who was a political activist was thinking about uh, running, they shouldn't be entirely discouraged, but they they should also recognize that it's going to be a bit of a slog. One of the things you mentioned in your book was that principle of cabinet solidarity was extended to caucus in in the NDP caucus. Can you tell us a bit about how that came to be? Yeah, um, so cabinet uh, solidarity is a long-standing, well-recognized, quasi-constitutional convention. And the nature of it is that all the members of cabinet have to support publicly whatever the prevailing decision is. The trade-off for that is that they've been part of the decision-making. That is, they were actually involved in arriving at the policy. It's understandable that there is this kind of internal cohesion that is sought. And what goes along with that is that if if a member of cabinet feels that they can't support it, then they're, they're supposed to resign from cabinet and get out. But At the caucus level, it's different. At the caucus level, frequently caucuses are not the locus of decision-making. The locus of decision-making is either the cabinet or it's the premier's office. And this means that the farther away you are from being responsible for the decision that's made, the less there should be pressure on people to go along with the decision if they don't like it. What did happen is that we had one particular instance that I was involved with in which I was speaking publicly against the decision 
that our government made to put money into the support of the convention center, uh, the new convention center downtown. Now, sort of two things got bound up there. One was I spoke against it, but I was already on record against it before I was an MLA anyway. I mean, you know, this, this had a long history before our government even kind of got, uh, got involved in it. So I didn't feel I was inappropriately out of line on, on that. What did occur was that I inadvertently said outside of the caucus room the dollar number that the government had committed to. And in the end... Although some of my caucus colleagues initially didn't believe that that was inadvertent. They thought I had done it deliberately. Ultimately, I think they they came around and understood that it it was an accident and it wasn't something that I had set out to do uh, deliberately and that I didn't, I thought that it was the place of the minister to, to release that information in due time and so on. However, after that settled down, about a month later, the caucus was presented with a set of policies that were essentially caucus solidarity policies that would be a kind of of the sort that were essentially written manifestations of the idea of cabinet solidarity. So essentially it kind of said, let's just articulate what it is that we expect from caucus. And what we expect from caucus is that everyone will support the decision that are made and if you don't think you can live with it then you should talk to the leader and if you still can't uh, live with it then you're welcome to go sit as an independent so it, it was aggressive and it was also in my view the wrong approach to a democratic decision making at the caucus level so this was unfortunate and in the end it was never tested after that uh, this was quite late in the uh, government time, it sent, of course, a signal to the all members of caucus, which is it made manifest what had been probably assumed, largely assumed before, which is that there wasn't going to be much tolerance, if any, of dissenting views. At the same time, you know, the reality is that on a case-by-case basis, there were exceptions allowed. Uh, Sterling Beliveau, for example, uh, criticized the redrawing of electoral boundaries that essentially eliminated Shelburne as a standalone constituency. And... And he was in cabinet, right? I mean, so, I mean, normally you, you don't say that if you're in cabinet, you keep your mouth shut. But he obviously thought it was important enough for him to go on record about, and he was a close ally of Daryl's, and Daryl wasn't about to fire him or uh, make him go sit as an independent. So, you know, it, it didn't happen. And I think there was some something Graham uh, voted against as well, but... That might have still been when we were the opposition. I can't. I can't remember. And I certainly absented myself from a number of votes, things that I, I wouldn't vote in favor of, but chose not to stand up and speak uh, speak against. Anyway, so there were things like that. So it was a bit slightly chaotic. But what the prevailing view was in favor of uh, caucus solidarity. Does that kind of get at what you were wondering about? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, you know, party discipline, it's a very peculiar thing. I mean, here's the argument in favor of it. The argument in favor of it is, well, we're all part of a team, right? So if we're all part of a team, you know, you have to work uh, work together. But as one of my colleagues said, you know, we're not on the team, we're on the bench. I mean, we're the, we're the people sitting on the bench, and, and that's not quite the same thing. And that was, I think, Jim Boudreau from the Eastern Shore, Guysborough. I mean, he and he was right. That was really the position of most of the caucus, is we were on the bench. Uh, we weren't so much part of the team. We, were out there, we weren't out there skating and passing the puck and getting the chance to score or uh, actually participating. We were, we were just off on the sidelines there. Well... You know, political parties are not even mentioned in the Constitution. They're kind of an invention in a way. 
So, I mean, political parties are not even mentioned in the Constitution, but they are a reality. They're not going away. And uh, they emerged a couple of hundred years ago as a, a sort of grouping of more or less like-minded people who would show themselves to the electorate as as being more or less on a particular point on the political spectrum. And that's what political parties are about, is that they're a group of more or less like-minded people who are more or less in one place on the political spectrum. And that's, I think, a fairly healthy starting point, but it, it has evolved from that because of the, the real drive to win power. And along with the drive to win power goes things like professionalism in the sense of people who are career politicians or career staffers. And uh, when people are career politicians or career staffers, they're really desperate to win because that's how they make their living and how they see their whole careers as developing. They're not people who serve for, you know, they think maybe five years or maybe six years and uh, ten at the most, and then they go back to whatever their regular lives might have been. They really want to be there forever. And that, I think, is unhealthy, uh, but it's been part of uh, what has driven political parties to try to save themselves from embarrassment either real embarrassments or else to be overly sensitive to what what might be a potential embarrassment. And along with that is the accretion of power at the center. So all of these things, I think, have had spin-offs for seriously increased party discipline. Not a healthy situation to be in, I have to say. A lot of political parties uh, have tacitly consented to this. They've allowed the that process to develop and not fought back strongly enough because it is possible for caucuses or political parties that is their membership at large you know to require much more openness inside their parties for them to be much more democratic but again there lots of political parties are uh, their memberships are keen likewise keen on on winning power and are and tend to forget or lose sight of the principles that animated them in the first place to to get involved in politics. Too bad, but it's not something I think you can be completely doctrinaire about. You just have to identify trends and try and speak out about them. Hmm. And do you think there's, you know, you're saying saying that political parties have a bit of a role potentially in taking some of that power back and decentralizing? Yeah, the membership. The membership does, yes. And and caucuses do. I mean, there are different things that uh, parties and caucuses uh, can can do. Caucuses, for example, can insist that, you know, uh, major decisions have to come to caucus, or they can insist on uh, choosing their own chair of caucus, or who their nominee is for deputy speaker, or who's going to chair committees, or who will be the whip, and to vote on those by secret ballot, for example, instead of just leaving it to the leader to uh, appoint those people. Uh, or political parties can insist that there be leadership reviews, you know, on a regular basis, and not just at after every election or something fairly common, you know, that is, uh, leaders tend to kind of stay in for a long, long time. Anyway, so there are a variety of, of measures, I think, that uh, that could be taken. But uh, legislating, 
Yes, uh, I think some of those things probably should be legislated. Uh, right now, legislation about political parties is mostly about the finances of political parties. It's, yeah, but, but I think the internal dynamics of political parties will probably come under more scrutiny. We've seen some very good writing about that in recent years. Brent Rathsgaber, the, I think, Calgary Member of Parliament from the Conservatives, wrote very clearly and well about his experience as uh, as an MP and uh, why he didn't much like it and, and the things that were wrong. I mean, I think the more examination there is of how those systems go, the more, or have been going, the, the more likely it is that we will see bills come forward to try and and, uh, and affect that. In fact, didn't Michael Chong uh, bring forward some uh, a draft bill or a bill? Uh, and so I think those kinds of initiatives we'll see more of. And sooner or later, they'll be successful. I mean, that's how policy evolves is uh, uh, someone identifies a problem. They begin to talk about it. There's press, there are books. Someone floats a bill and sooner or later something will happen, I think, is, is really how it evolves. And I think that's bound to come. So you mentioned a lot of measures to make the party grassroots membership, to make the leadership of their party more accountable. Yes. But you also mentioned that making parties more open is also kind of a solution to the problem mm -hmm. of centralization of power. Yeah. How does that look to you? Like, how could that be achieved? Well... It would be a big step forward if parties stopped worrying so much about caucus discipline and allowed the MLAs or MPs to speak out if they have different views. This is a good thing. I mean, there's a lot that's intangible about this. That is, tone is important. You know, it's, it's probably not helpful for MLAs to stand up and, and call their party leader an idiot or, or whatever. I mean, you know, that's I mean, name-calling is not all that helpful anyway. But, I mean, the point is that where reasonable people can reasonably differ, and they do, then they should be able to stand up and say what their different views are. Let's take a recent example in Nova Scotia, which has been the, the dispute over the film tax credit, right? I mean, there's something that it seems highly unlikely that their caucus at large was consulted about. But even if they were, they found themselves in the middle of a big mistake. They clearly had offended a lot of people, and individual MLAs are going to be at risk of losing their seats. And I'm sure not every MLA in the Liberal caucus uh, favored the initial government position or even the modified government position. And let's hope that some of them internally were saying what they thought to cabinet, but it wouldn't have been fatal to the Liberal Party if some of those MLAs were standing up publicly and saying, gosh, you know, this doesn't seem to me like such a good idea, and I'm telling the Premier and the Minister of Finance that I hope they change it. I don't see how that sinks the Liberal Party. I don't see how that is going to be fatal to Diana Whelan as Minister of Finance or Stephen McNeil as the Premier. It would show that there was a variety of opinions inside the party, and there you are, you know, and it would signal to their constituents for the MLAs that their MLAs were were trying to help them in their back end, because otherwise they don't know. They don't know that. I mean, they, they have to live with this. If they don't say that, then their constituents are going to conclude ration, or rationally that their individual MLA supports this position. Not a good thing for them electorally, I wouldn't have thought.
anyway. So that's just a, an example where I think that there could be a reasonable articulation of different different opinions without it being necessary to think about expelling someone from the caucus or disciplining them forever so that they could never be considered for cabinet or for to be chair of caucus or the whip or something, whatever. It should just be a, the normal part of doing business. I think that that's what it would look like. That would be a good starting point is for people not to be so agitated, for the party leadership not to be so agitated about differing voices. That makes sense. Yeah. What would you say is your thing you are most proud of uh, from having served in the legislature? Ooh, I don't know. I obviously never asked myself that question, I guess. I don't know. I, I tend not to think about pride very much, I guess. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Well, um, uh, beats me. I, I don't... Well, there's relatively little I think I could take personal credit for in terms of completed accomplishments. I would say it's more a question of having regularly spoken out in a particular way to try to mold public opinion uh, or the opinions of my colleagues. And that would have to do largely with environmental issues over, over time and to a lesser extent about uh, social inequality or labor relations issues. I, I would say those have been big preoccupations for me inside the legislature. And maybe also municipal land use planning stuff, municipal issues. So those are things that I talked about regularly in the legislature. But again, whether they have any serious consequences, I'm not sure. I mean, I know that there are particular bills that got amended in ways that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been there. But... I tend not to dwell on those too much. You're done being an elected official. Yeah. But it sounds like you're still involved in the party and politics. Yeah, very much so. Oh, um, so right now the main contest inside the NDP is for the future direction of the party. And the question is whether we will continue to look like the NDP under Daryl Dexter or whether we will look more like the kind of progressive NDP that we've been in the past. And, and I know probably a lot of people of your generation maybe haven't seen so much of the progressive NDP, but it is there in the principles, it is there in the policies, and it was there in our history, particularly when we were the opposition. And the way this is going to be fought out, this little battle for the, the soul of the NDP in Nova Scotia, is over our choice of the next leader. And so this won't happen until a year from now, actually. The, the formal leadership campaign starts, I guess, in June of this year. I forget when the convention is, but it's a year later, so either May or June of 2016. So uh, during that time, the party will have to decide you know, what its direction is going to be. The opportunity to indicate that direction will be in choosing the leader. And uh, right now, there are three people who have said they're likely to, to run for leader, and one of them is a former member of Daryl's cabinet, and the other two are not. I think it would be very unfortunate for the party if we were to choose a person who had been in Daryl's cabinet. This, I think, would not go down well with the voters, and I think is not going to go down well, or would not go down well with uh, many traditional supporters of the party, members of the party. The party is in a precarious moment because of dwindling numbers of memberships and uh, dwindling financial support. At the same time, we did get 27% of the vote in the last election, and so there is something there 
but it's not clear the direction the party will go in. Anyway, but I'm involved. I'm involved in this. I'm working with one of the the other candidates, and I'm hoping that uh, you know we'll we'll get a, a progressive person as uh, as the uh, as the new leader. That was Howard Epstein, a former Halifax area MLA, NDP backbencher, uh, and former Halifax city councillor who, while MLA, represented the riding of Halifax Shibukto. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Offscript podcast. If you're enjoying what you're hearing and getting something out of it, consider making a donation to the podcast. You can do that at offscript.ca and click on the donate button there. You can donate a small amount each month, say $3 or $5, which truly helps with the production cost of a podcast like this. And thank you to those of you who have made a donation in the last few weeks. Uh, It means a lot. And seeing that come through while we're working on an upcoming episode really motivates us to get it to you on time and get it out the door and truly do our best at it. So much appreciation to those of you who have made donations or recurring donations already. And if you have a chance, head over to uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, find this podcast page, search for On the Record Off Script, and just give us a quick star rating um, and leave a comment as a review if you have a moment. It really helps us get the podcast out there for other people who have interests similar to yours uh, and and reach the ears of people who, who might want to hear it. 